0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Stuart Henderson on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Making the Scene, Yorkville and Hip Toronto in the 1960s. When I was a young man, I sort of wanted... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Stuart Henderson on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Making the Scene, Yorkville and Hip Toronto in the 1960s. When I was a young man, I sort of wanted to be a hippie, or at least hip. So one of the things I did is I moved to Berkeley, California, where I thought that people were either hippies or hip. I knew to move there because the press told me so. Berkeley had this image as a place where young people gathered and pretty much did their own thing. And I really wanted to do my own thing. Unhappily for me, when I got there, people were no longer doing their own thing. Stuart Henderson, in making the scene, tells us about another place which is a little bit like Berkeley or Haight-Ashbury or the village in New York, and that is Yorkville in Toronto. I didn't know anything about Yorkville, but apparently it is where young Canadians went when they wanted to do their own things. There was a hippie scene there. There were cafes, and there were musicians, and there were drugs, and there was sexual experimentation, and there were all of these things. Some of them good and some of them bad. In making the scene, Stuart tells us about the arc of Yorkville from a kind of sleepy ethnic enclave to hate Ashbury North, so to say, and then finally to something very, very different. I won't give the ending away. But you should definitely listen to the interview because you'll probably want to know it. And if you've ever been to Yorkville, you really should listen to this interview. Anyway, I enjoyed talking with Stuart today, and without further ado, here is the interview hi Stuart. oh hi, Marshall. How are you today
1: i'm well thanks how are you
0: i'm Pretty good, thanks very much. Uh, Today we're talking with Stuart Henderson about his terrific new book, Making the Scene Yorkville and Hip Toronto in the 1960s. As I was telling Stuart before the interview, I have never been to Yorkville and I've only been to Canada a couple of times, uh, much to my shame. And so I decided before reading the book to read a little bit about Yorkville, and then I read the book. And what I found was that the two images I got were very different. The Yorkville that Stuart describes is one Yorkville, and the Yorkville that I read about, which As I said again in the pre-interview, it was a good place to buy a $500 handbag. Uh, it's very, very different, and I was really curious to find out how the Yorkville of Stuart's book became the Yorkville of the $500 handbag, and I suspect we're going to hear that story today. At least I really hope we do, and I, I hope that you out and pick up this book, because if you're interested in uh, the 1960s, and I certainly am, I was born in the 1960s, I don't remember them very well, but uh, th- th- this cast a whole new light uh, on them. We Americans tend to think of the 60s in terms of, you know, Greenwich Village and Woodstock and Berkeley and you know, that sort of thing, hate Ashbury. But in fact, there was a a huge amount of the same things happened uh, up north in Toronto and in the Yorkville district. And you can read all about them in Stuart's book. Stuart, why don't you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, so I uh, grew up in Toronto and I was born in the late 70s though. So I was born uh, to baby boomers and... uh, I grew up, you know, among children who were born of baby boomers, and we sort of had this strange experience or understanding of the 1960s. It was the 1960s reflected through our parents' kind of valorization and celebration, uh, mythologization, I suppose you could say, of their experiences uh, as teens in that in that decade. And we, I think, generally speaking, there was this kind of reverence uh, that we all shared in, uh, and and. There was this again. It was it was it was mythology more than anything else, and so I, I grew up uh, as a sort of wannabe hippie kid. I mean, I was the long haired uh, anachronism throughout high school, and uh, it, it seemed perfectly rational to me that, uh, and to many of my friends, we I was in quite a wide group of sort of neo hippies. Uh, it seemed perfectly rational that we were carrying on uh, what we understood to have been the you know this deeply authentic countercultural uh, moment of the 1960s, and uh, you know, so I mean, and that really deeply informed my own you know worldview, my understanding of myself uh, vis-à-vis mainstream society, uh, especially as a teenager when you're so you know open to those kinds of mm-hmm. those kinds of questions about identity formation, etc. Uh, and then I went to university and I started to gain some perspective on this, and I became a history student, and then eventually a grad student, and I started to Really read about the 1960s and go beyond the the surface interpretations uh, that largely I had uh, you know been uh, exposed to, and started to see really fascinating uh, things that were far more complex than I had ever been given to understand and one of the things that was most apparent to me was the transnational uh, um, reality of culture in the 1960s and and how that was different in many ways, um, partly due to television, partly due to the explosion of popular culture in other ways, how that was different from decades previous. The 1960s then, it does seem like in many ways this kind of America center of the universe phenomenon, but so much of what's happening in the United States is happening virtually simultaneously in other countries, in other milieu around the world. And th- this cultural transmission I found to be fascinating and something that, again, is uh, was too p- complex perhaps for the, uh, for the treatments that I had come to understand growing up. Because part of the thing that I uh, was attracted to as, as a Canadian um, and as, I suppose, a Canadian historian was the fact of This 1960s phenomenon, this experience, the idea of counterculture or student protest or uh, civil rights movements, et cetera, these things happening here in Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, so much of that was forgotten. Mm -hmm. So, as a grad student, uh, you know, you're you're inundated with all of this information, all of these theorists, uh, you're reading book after book after book towards your dissertation. I found myself connecting various dots. Dot one was uh, performance. I am attracted to the idea of performance, performance theory. Uh, I found myself reading Judith Butler, as many of us were at that time, uh, and kind of riffing on, experimenting with ideas that uh, came out of her uh, work of the late 80s and early 90s, uh, alongside other theorists, of course, especially theorists of performance. I connected that dot with the idea of counterculture, the idea of developing a kind of alternative, contrary position in public, which is very key and central, I think, to the discussion of counterculture in the 1960s. And I started to see what would happen if I considered the idea of counterculture, youth culture, uh, in that period with performance theory mm-hmm. and what ended up happening was uh, me kind of casting around looking for a, uh, a worthy place to sort of bounce these ideas off. Haight Ashbury seemed too obvious. Uh, Greenwich Village seemed um, somewhat more complicated by the fact of its long standing traditionally, or long standing reputation as a bohemian center. Yorkville in Toronto, which had become essentially like Hate ashbury North, as it was derisively termed at the time, uh, was like this untapped uh, resource. You know, there have been a couple of studies that touched on it, but nobody had really focused on it as uh, a, you know a countercultural site, and that became the focus of the study.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds like a great uh, insight on your part, because this is, in a way, to put particularly Haight Ashbury but also other places like um, across the Bay in Berkeley and in uh, and, and in Greenwich Village into a kind of international comparative light.
1: And- there was an element of comparison, absolutely. And but as much as, as I was interested in, in doing that kind of comparative back and forth, I, I really wanted to blow up the whole idea of there being one central uh, you know, key one central and all important site at which counterculture took place or from which it emanated. Mm-hmm. I think that that uh, is more of a media construction than virtually any other aspect of the counterculture uh, that I can think of. And so in blowing that up, what I was trying to do was establish the fact that throughout all of North America, but also into Western Europe and, uh, and beyond, these types of countercultural sites uh, usually bounded – you know, usually kind of circumscribed territory within cities. These kind of sites existed everywhere. Mm-hmm. There were some of them were small, some of them were larger than others. Uh, Haight Ashbury got the lion's share of attention, but uh, and in Canada Yorkville gets the lion's share of attention. But they were everywhere, mm-hmm. and. So in in studying this one particular place, I'm not trying to sort of rehabilitate it, uh, in as much as I'm trying to suggest that this countercultural moment, uh, uh, and and I'm uh, I, I, we can talk about the ways that counterculture as a as a sort of term is problematic, but this counterculture of the 1960s is not geographically specific. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you're right that the media tended to focus and sell certain focus on and sell certain places. Uh, And, you know, actually they had help, you know, if you're going to San Francisco, Uh blah, blah, blah. Is it, don't forget to wear flowers in your hair. You'll meet a lot of nice people there or what? Something like that. That's right. Yeah. So it's not, if you're going to Madison, Wisconsin, (laughs) for example, that's what people think about in the Midwest, you know, it's a wild place. Um, but you know, it's interesting. You mentioned this because even when I was, I was a little kid in the sixties, but, um, and I don't really remember any of it. My my sixties all happened in the early seventies. Uh, so, but I remember even in Wichita, where I grew up, that there were head shops. And there were hippies. There were especially bikers. I'm glad that you mentioned bikers in, in the book because mm-hmm. in my mind, they were kind of indistinguishable, at least mm-hmm. in Wichita they were. And it's funny because here in Iowa City, uh, the, the city where I'm uh, now sitting and from which I'm talking to you, uh, you can find hippies and you can find a lot of bikers. So uh, these things in certain places uh, are, are alive and well um I think they're alive and well where real estate doesn't cost a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say <laughs> unlike Yorkville I think so why don't we begin to tell the story of Yorkville uh, can you uh, sort of start at the beginning it was a suburb is that right or
1: well sort of it yeah. was I mean it was a suburb you know historically back in the 19th century and then uh, as the city grew uh, Toronto was one of these cities that doubled and then redoubled and then redoubled again in size over the last hundred years by the middle of the last century Toronto was experiencing a boom uh, after the Second World War. What was happening is they were building these suburbs on the outskirts of the city uh, and the largely middle class wasp uh, population that had was traditionally the Toronto population uh, or by and large began to move out of the downtown core and they started to move to these sub- suburbs and empty out these spaces. Uh, Who is moving in? Well, there's an influx of uh, immigrants in in the post-war years, the displaced people. Toronto was a real center for displaced peoples, but it was also a center for Europeans uh, who were up and leaving uh, under other circumstances. And they tended to now fill up these uh, suddenly empty downtown-ish areas. And Yorkville uh, isn't quite in the downtown core, but it's just north of it. I mean, it's, it's... If you look at Toronto now, it's basically the dead center of uh, metropolitan Toronto. Um, Yorkville, the Annex uh, neighborhood, these neighborhoods uh, are very, very proximate to downtown. um, And all of a sudden, they are filled with... New Torontonians. And these new Torontonians bring with them all sorts of, uh, old European ideas, uh, and some new European ideas, I suppose, as well. Uh, one of these innovations is, uh, the idea of a, a coffee shop. I mean, something so simple as a, as a, as a coffee house actually plays a major role in the story.
0: And we're not talking Tim Hortons here, are we?
1: We are not. No, (laughs) thankfully. We are not talking Tim Hortons. Uh, you know, but this is, and, and that's part of the thing is this is the era pre, uh, Coffee shop as a sort of expected hangout for uh, people after work. There were tea shops in Toronto, places like that, but there was no sort of sense by, say, like 1945 that you know you could go and hang around, sit on a patio, sip coffee, and talk with your friends. This is kind of this is an innovation of the uh, post-war European uh, influx to Toronto, and so if you have a, if you have this neighborhood Yorkville. In which uh, you have a high concentration of uh, Europeans. There are suddenly coffee houses. Coffee houses attract. Uh, they need to have. They want to have entertainment. So, income local musicians. Uh, it's now the late fifties. The uh, Bohemian, very small, sort of beat art scene in Toronto latches onto this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I I found in studying this is that, uh, and and anyone who has studied other urban areas in in America, uh, in North America, in this period, or has studied counterculture youth culture, will see parallels throughout all of this story. But one of the things that happens is the bohemian or beat influenced youth culture of the late fifties, early sixties, is casting around like crazy for something that they can, can they they can see as authentic, something that they can. Uh, believe to be real. Mm-hmm. And this, this quest for authenticity, uh, much maligned by, by many, uh, as an empty uh, pursuit. Uh, was a really real motivator for a lot of people in this period. And 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 looking around Toronto, a very puritanical uh, Protestant city. It was famously known as Toronto the Good. Um, you know, uh, there, there were famous comparative stories between Toronto and Montreal. Montreal was filled with sin and fun and vice, and but Toronto is a very puritanical and and frankly sleepy place. And there's a and there's a certain degree of uh, celebration of this fact on the part of municipal authorities. It's known is a place that it's hard to get a drink after 11 o'clock. Yorkville, with the coffee houses, uh, seems, for whatever reason, to be this kind of authentic, real space in an otherwise boring city. And it attracts the artists. It attracts the, the, the folk singers, which have become this kind of new trending thing by the late 1950s. And... This is really the, the 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 genesis of Yorkville as this sort of countercultural center. It slowly t- uh, takes hold through the late fifties and into the early sixties. A previous center downtown, further downtown, uh, where many art galleries were, and which was sort of the pre hippie scene, it gets torn down uh, at, because there's a development that takes place, and so. There's a kind of migration up to Yorkville of of you know artists and writers and poets and musicians. Yorkville really starts to cohere as a countercultural site in around 1962 63. Mm-hmm. And when I say that it coheres as a countercultural site, what I mean to say is people there's nowhere else to go, <laughs> which is the really important thing to understand about this about Toronto in this period. There's not anywhere else uh, that makes any Sense to hang out if you 're looking for something uh, that's alternative to the mainstream an alternative to what sounds like it's otherwise fairly boring there's a strip of kind of seedy bars on Young Street, which is a major uh, thoroughfare in Toronto but they are given over to you know somewhat uh, tougher characters working class there's a there's a a, a touch of danger and violence about them um, Yorkville has this Again, bohemian uh, quality because of the European influences. It has this this attraction to uh, beat-influenced kids. And the folk singers get up on stage and a kind of industry begins to develop around this. Mm-hmm. What's so interesting about this to me is that what you have very, very quickly is you move from a neighborhood that's essentially an ethnic ghetto in Toronto to... Another kind of ghetto, a ghetto that's still understood as being circumscribed, bounded by its kind of, um, uh, neighborhood, uh, boundaries in which something different is happening. There's this kind of sense that develops by about 63, and you see this in the media, um, in coverage of the district, that it is a place where something else is happening. It's this kind of island of difference Mm -hmm. in Toronto, Yorkville. That's crucial. Because what that does is present to Torontonians, to, to young uh, people who are reading the newspapers perhaps or seeing it on TV or listening to their friends at school, this sense that you can go from your white bread suburban Toronto life uh, and walk into Yorkville and boom, you're part of something different. Right. You are taking part in this thing that has not yet been named counterculture, but which will be. This is what causes Yorkville to develop into a a contested site, and that's where uh, me as as an academic I as an academic uh, became most uh, uh, attracted to this story mm-hmm. this this place this very small space in Toronto becomes understood as the place to perform alternative activities.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I like what you said especially about uh, authenticity and critics thereof and the classic american story of authenticity and critics thereof is of course uh, Robert Zimmerman from Hibbing mm-hmm. Minnesota who goes to the University of Minnesota and becomes Bob Dylan and whose idol is Woody Guthrie. So he went and remade himself in minneapolis he went to a place where he thought he could be somebody different and you know he was attracted to it and as i say these parts of the upper midwest even today have this they have a reputation as being a place you can remake yourself where something different is happening and for him it certainly was something different and then he shortly thereafter he goes to someplace else where he Mm -hmm. thought something different was happening he goes to uh lower manhattan um which i think he does next i'm not really i don't really remember Mm -hmm. but uh, I know even in my – I hate to be autobiographical, but even in my own life, you know, I grew up in uh, in Kansas, as I told you before. And, you know, when I was getting ready to go to graduate school, I really wanted to go to some place where I thought something different was happening. And so I went to Berkeley. Little did I know that uh, nothing different was happening there <laughs> in, the, in the in the late 1980s. Um, but I still had this notion that there something different was happening and I could be somebody different. I still, You know, I could identify it as, oh, that place, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, these places still exist today. Where you know young people are attracted, I'm, I'm always reminded of, um, you know, in the process of talking to people about the New Books Network and recruiting hosts and things, it it frequently happens that I talk to uh, young people. I'm an old guy now, who live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but mm-hmm. apparently it's one of these places where people go to remake themselves. And, I, you know, it's all the time. So anyway, I, you know, th- this is sort of the first moment in that in that what was now kind of a ritual of, of recreation of yourself. And I guess Yorkville was the place to do it in the early 60s.
1: Oh, a- absolutely. And that, I think that that's exactly uh, what I'm trying to explore here is 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 precisely that i mean in toronto right now there are hipster zones um, yeah. uh, zones understood to be uh taken over by this sort of certain class of countercultural youth and in other words there's a kind of movable feast mm-hmm. <laughs> here that that yeah. um seems to have its first instance that i've that i'm able to find uh in toronto anyway with with yorkville mm-hmm. and what's what's so important um or at least so fascinating to me uh, about this, uh, this zone of difference, this island in Toronto, is that it gets really confusing really quickly trying to figure out whose space it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, who is a villager, as they were called? Right. Is it um, that guy over there with the longish hair who looks like a villager? Because how do you know? Tourism becomes a major uh, issue for, for many people involved in the scene. Who is real? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if the counterculture, and many people took it extraordinarily seriously, this this stepping out of the confines of the mainstream um, and, and trying to live otherwise, this kind of grand adventure of living otherwise that many people who would be called hippies were engaged in, these people are I- impossible to tell from somebody who just put on a hippie wig and came out down from the suburbs mm-hmm. and walked the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to really spend time with people before you can get below that surface impression. And then the reality is, is that uh, as the '60s wear on, you start to realize that getting below the surface impression, you still end up with somebody who's performing a certain idea of counterculture mm-hmm. that has been taught to them, right. that they've but- that they've picked up by some some kind of osmosis, perhaps, or through media exposure, uh, etc. And this gets back to this kind of transnational phenomenon of counterculture, where where does any of this stuff really start or emanate from? Uh, it's spreading through all sorts of these, these different matrix, uh, matrix matrices matrices <laughs> of uh, uh, you know of, of information sharing, like underground newspapers, which mm-hmm. are passed around all over North America, mm-hmm. um, teaching people how to live otherwise, how to step out. Mm-hmm. So I became fascinated by th- this question of who is. A villager, and I was not alone. It turns out, as I started the research, I found that there were ethnographic studies uh, <laughs> taken of Yorkville in the 1960s. I mean, there's literally a story in my book that I recount of a um, a man who was hired by the Addiction Research Foundation in Toronto. He was hired to go undercover into Yorkville, dressed as a hippie, and to meet, record. Conversations with uh, and observe hippies Mm -hmm. as though they were, you know, some some far off tribe in in some far off place. And I started to look at Yorkville. I try to look at Yorkville through their eyes. It was starting to appear to many observers on the outside uh, as a foreign. Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you started to even see this, this language popping up in, in press. I mean, uh, there was an alderman, Horace Brown, who actually said it was a foreign land taken over by teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there's purple prose you started to see from, from journalists talking about uh, voyaging into the dark jungles of Yorkville <laughs> trying to find a story. Um, people openly musing about their fears that if they go into Yorkville, will they ever come out again? Mm-hmm and then these discourses started to develop by 6566 around you know young girls uh young women going into yorkville and being ruined yeah, by yorkville ruined. uh which is a course course code for losing their virginity yeah. uh or engaging in you know any manner of uh, sexual activity pre-marriage uh and young boys going in and being Destroyed by drug use, and and destroyed in that case had to do with the, them becoming incapable of uh, sort of middle class employment, mm-hmm. and this this idea that Yorkville, this again very small geographic area in Toronto, has this 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 is it, there's this impression that's created around it that it is like passing through fire. <laughs> um, I found to be extraordinary.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you, to bring the story forward just a little bit, I like that expression, passing through fire. The, uh, so in 63, the scene is said, by 64, people are coming who um, uh, didn't, I, I guess, help create it. But they, but they are coming, they are attracted to it, like uh, right. you know, uh, 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 flies to, let's say, sugar instead well,
1: of the other thing. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. There's this, there's absolutely this, this shift by about 64 where people start to see it as a project, Mm -hmm. right? Prior to 64, it's like people are going to hang around there, um, because they're attracted to the folk music or the poetry, et cetera. By 64, 65, as the press is paying more and more attention to it, young people are starting to see it as their site, as their place. It, it is a youth center of some kind. And, you know, and of course, coffee houses and bar uh, not bars, actually, but um, because liquor licenses were still hard to come by. But uh, dance clubs, these are starting to open up to cater to the young people who are pouring into the scene. But... Um, among those young people there are there are these i guess we call them leaders uh who see this as a project okay this is our space let's make it our space let's actually agitate against those forces that would try to take this site away from us and this is when the contested space issue becomes so important you have shop owners in the district many of whom are trying desperately to cater to the wealthy torontonian uh um you know upper middle classes uh, from the local neighborhoods uh, that are battling against this idea of hip kids lying on their front stoop when they get to work in the morning, you know? It's <laughs> a never-ending um, battle. <laughs> yeah, well, right. And then you've got police who are concerned that there are there's this whisper of drug use in the district, which mm-hmm. is very uncomfortable, un, uh, um, uh, because Toronto is, again, such a puritanical place. There's really not much history of uh, drug use to be found among middle-class people, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Um, and... You have these questions of sexuality, you have these questions of what are these kids up to and so shop owners, police municipal authorities are now getting involved, concerned that you know they're going to lose votes if they don 't do something about the scourge of, of you know youth in Yorkville and you have among the young people hanging around there s- these kind of splits along identity lines you have These middle class, largely middle class, largely suburban, um, you know, white uh, young people who are closely associated with this kind of post-beat, proto-hippie thing in around 64, 65. You have working class youth, many of whom are um, uh, the children of immigrants, of the recent immigrants, um, who tend to be called greasers, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, a derisive term, um, but which is also reclaimed to a certain extent by many of these young people. There's a, there's uniforms, clothing styles that start to develop a, the, around these two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are sort of battling for supremacy in the district. And, and then, of course, you've got the tourists, which are sometimes dubbed weekenders, who are appearing in ever-increasing numbers through 64, 65, every night, Just driving down the streets, Mm -hmm. walking down the streets in groups of friends, trying to see what's happening. The reason I named the book Making the Scene uh, is that that's really what it's all about. It's a nightly reconstruction of this place, this imagined uh, site, uh, this contested uh, island in the middle of Toronto. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I like that idea of making the scene because when I was growing up, and this started, I think, in the 40s or 50s in Wichita, there's a street called Douglas. And we used to do this thing called Scoop the Loop. And we would mm-hmm. get in our cars. And we were not hippies or anything like that. Uh, but we would, pretty much everybody agreed from all the high schools that uh, everybody would go down there with their cars and we would drive around in this circuit. Mm-hmm. And we knew the police would be there. And we knew people would come out and watch us do this. And we'd turn our radios up real loud. And you we know, were probably, we were drinking at the time and that kind of thing. But we were very consciously, we picked a place to make the scene. Mm-hmm. That was it. And you scooped the loop on Douglas. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it was just, it was like a, a weird convention. It's like, okay, everybody's going to be there on Friday night, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's,
1: uh, it, it's very, and it is it is that kind of small town, like American graffiti phenomenon yeah, no, of driving right. up yeah. and down Main right. Street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Here, trans. Muted in a way mm-hmm. um, because you're driving out of Toronto and into Yorkville. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like, what are you going to do on Friday night? We're going to drive. Down Yorkville. Yeah, it's only it's like it's like 500 meters. Uh-huh. Yeah, right, <laughs> uh, I mean yeah. this is not a lot of driving, and then
0: it's so packed. Like going with cars out of town,
1: that, that it could take you two hours.
0: Yeah, right, um, exactly. So uh, let's let's bring it forward just a little bit more. Things get uh, by 64, 65, 66. Things get rough. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So by 60, let's say 65 as the various players are in place the sort of set pieces are are, are established uh everyone is fighting over yorkville what is it going to be is it going to be a, a counterculture site okay well then for what kind of counterculture uh is it going to be given back to the uh, to the shop owners is it going to become uh you know a tourist district that is you know cleaned up and and established these are all battles that are going on, but they, they filter down. One of the things that you see from municipal authorities especially is a playing up of, of danger, this idea that Yorkville is, 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 is catastrophic because young people are going in there, they're, they're fighting, they're killing each other, they're doing uh, uh, unbelievable things to their bodies, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs. All of, a lot of this stuff is imagined, and a lot of it is really overblown. But it's all advertising. I mean, it's accidental <laughs> advertising, but that's how it works. I mean, if you're sitting I – I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I'll speak for yeah. me. As a 17-year-old, if you're sitting around at home, bored out of your mind, and you think – Where is something happening? And you read that there's a that you know some alderman who looks a great deal like your boring uncle is going on and on about how kids in this little district are going to rock and roll concerts, doing drugs, and having sex.
0: I'm there, baby.
1: You go, (laughs) right? I mean, you go. And the vast majority of people that start appearing in in Yorkville by sixty six and sixty seven are these suburban kids that are just desperate to see it. They've got to see this place. Yeah. Uh, problem is, is they have also been told that it's dangerous, mm-hmm. and so some of them start bringing weapons, and some of them start coming with the impression that they are entering this dangerous site, uh, and and and. I I don't want to put all of the blame for this on the municipal authorities, but I think a great deal of this is a constructive phenomenon. It's like violence comes to Yorkville after everyone had been told it was already there. Mm -hmm. Um, But something else comes too. Drugs, uh, as we know, uh, prohibition breeds crime, Mm -hmm. and as drug use balloons in the yorkville scene and as identity becomes and this is really crucial as identity uh becomes bound up with drug use as it becomes tangled up with drug use how do you tell a real villager from a false one one way is drugs um if you're just a pretender to this kind of hip scene you're probably not that experienced with drugs but if you are really a villager that's part of your performance. You do drugs and you think about them and you talk about them and this comes up again and again and again. Well, you've got to get drugs and how do you do it? Uh, as police are paying more and more attention to the district, as municipal authorities are, are putting the finger on the district as a place where they've got to you know clean it up, uh, it gets harder and harder for people to move their product in, in the scene. The people that can do it are organizations. Uh, you know underground organizations and so in other words, enter the bikers. Mm-hmm. Um, by 66 67 biker gangs are consolidating their hold on the drug trade in the district and they bring with them violence uh, and violence of some pretty horrible sorts. I mean one of the things that we see a huge uptick in by 67 is um, is violence against women uh, and specifically gang rapes of young women in the scene. Um, again many of the things that had been warned ag- against uh, people had been warning against by you know 2 years earlier now it's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the 67 68 years the sort of years that are most closely associated in the mythology of the 60s as with you know wear some flowers in your hair as you alluded mm-hmm. to earlier uh, are actually alternate alternately light and very dark in the Yorkville scene. Drugs get uh, more dangerous. People are cutting um, LSD with all sorts of things, including things like Ajax, mm-hmm. uh, causing terrible reactions in, in people. There are several um, fairly high profile violent events, there are suicides. Um, Arrests become ever more frequent, and we're seeing a lot of these, you know, these young people uh, getting thrown away for a year uh, and more for very, very small amounts of possession. And paranoia becomes a, a feature of life in the district. Now, again, people are pouring in. By 1967, people are crossing the country to get into. Uh, Yorkville for the summer to go spend the summer there, mm-hmm. but there's nowhere to sleep, there's nowhere to stay. Um, people are crashing on, on on street corners. They're they're sleeping in in subways, uh, and this th- it becomes a very dangerous place for a lot of these young people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things my book picks up on by 67 is the development of of humanitarian efforts, uh, usually emanating from within the scene, um, that are designed to to forestall what they see as a humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see the Diggers, which is a group patterned after the Haight-Ashbury group of the same name, that emerge. Uh, They start working with, as much as possible, with the municipal authorities, working with the police, trying to secure safe sites for young people who are drifting through the scene, trying to control the drug trade, uh, at least make it more safe um, by alerting people to bad dealers or dangerous uh, pills, et cetera, and trying to warn people off amphetamines because injectable amphetamines were still legal and therefore... If everything else is harder to come by and you f- think you need to do drugs to fit into the scene, that's the one you do. Mm-hmm. The scourge of Yorkville by 67 and 68 and onward is the uh, emergence of speed freaks, mm-hmm. which is what they were called. Yep. Um, and this this real problem of drug addiction and uh, the violence that comes along with desperation when you are uh, junk sick and desperate to get what you need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: So there was this kind of self-organization, as you saw in San Francisco with the diggers, for example, I know a little bit about them and they start to give out food and they do make these safe places. And um, did that take off in Yorkville? I mean, was it successful at all or was it just, was the problem just too large for any sort of voluntary organization to deal with?
1: Um, Well, both the answer is column A and column B Uh because uh, on the one hand, they were highly successful in, um, in performing that function in the district. They were the people you went to if you had a problem. They're sort of the local government, mm-hmm. um, such that there could be a local government. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were emissaries in the sense that they went to uh, argue the case for Yorkville, uh, for Yorkville's autonomy, <laughs> as it were, to, uh, to the Toronto government. But, uh, But yes, the problem is vast. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of young people pouring into the district, uh, finding nothing there that they could really – that could welcome them other than like-minded strangers. Um, There's a beauty to this uh, idea – uh, that is not we should not lose sight of that, that many people having some extraordinarily positive experiences they come to the district penniless uh, having just hitchhiked you know from the states or from uh, west coast east coast of canada they get there and you know almost right away they find somewhere somebody's couch to sleep on they find some somebody who'll take them out and show them around. This happened all the time. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, it was a hard reality that they got to Yorkville and it wasn't beautiful mm-hmm. to them. And the diggers were really the only um, resource that they had. One of the things the diggers did was set up a, a house with the help of a, a, re- a benevolent um, and quite famous Canadian journalist, June Colwood. Um, they set up a, a house just on the outskirts of the scene where you know young people could could crash and they could uh, they could stay there. It was called Digger House, mm-hmm. but I mean, this is what twenty kids. Yeah, um, it's a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you start when people start asking, how does the Yorkville scene come to an end? Because we really are talking about a rise and fall. We've mm-hmm. gotten to the rise, and the fall happens really fast.
0: You've anticipated my next question.
1: <laughs> I'm stepping ahead, mm-hmm. but I mean, this is this is where you get to that question. It really is. Um, Did we reach a a tipping point? And I think the answer is yes. There's too much pressure on the scene from the authorities of various kinds. Um, Parents are terrified that their kids are going to be lost to this scene. Uh, And I mean, it's not just lost to the drugs and the and the uh, the sex and the violence, etc. It's also lost to the ideology. I mean, the idea that your your uh, good little middle class uh, kid from the suburbs suddenly is going to become a no shoe wearing, bead having, long haired uh, hippie freak is is truly terrifying for a lot of parents. And the idea that
0: that was me in about 1983. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I mean, the, the
1: idea that, that Yorkville is the reason that that could happen and that if you could get rid of Yorkville, then that threat would be eliminated. Mm-hmm. As crazy as that might sound today, that was actually what many people thought mm-hmm. still by 1967, 68. Shut mm-hmm. that place down and then things will go back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what people started to try to do. One of the things that they start uh, doing – The people, the Village of Yorkville Association, which is an association of local merchants, um, works in concert with the municipal uh, authorities, the aldermen, to Effectively changed the structure, the zoning uh, uh, in Yorkville, such that no more rooming houses could exist. That the buildings would be uh, sold off to developers, and they would they would just knock them down and then build things like hotels, mm-hmm. um, parking garages. Uh, they essentially erased a lot of the 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 charm of the district in this process. But they did manage to make the place uh, over very, very quickly mm-hmm. and cause a lot of people to leave.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about the end of it? I mean, was there any catastrophic event or was there a sort of a slow uh, wind down of things where people became disenchanted? Um, uh, can you describe the the kind of transmutation of the place from uh, this sort of hotbed of, I want to say, hippie radicalism or right. I don't know what it is, uh, patchouli oil-wearing, long-haired, bead. Bespangled kids to whatever else it became afterwards in the 70s.
1: <laughs> so, two things happen.
0: Simultaneously,
1: Well, I guess let's say three things. Okay. So thing one uh, is that the village has gotten too big for itself. Uh, it's become famous across Canada, but it's also actually famous in the United States uh, to the extent that uh, uh, by 68 draft resistors are pouring over the border to Toronto and heading to Yorkville. Uh, so Yorkville is, is becoming really complicated as a politically charged place. Um, it's also famous because musicians are pouring out of it. The other side to the story is that Yorkville spends most of the 1960s as an incubator of an extraordinary talent mm-hmm. coming out of Canada. It's not just the young people that want to engage with the drug and sex scene or the or the hippie ideologies, uh, the peace and love movement, all these different things. It's not just them that are going to Yorkville to try to find something. It's all of the musicians in Canada. Uh, if you want to have a career, it was pretty tough, but... You're not going to be able to pull it off if you're in Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. You've got to get to, you know, one of the major centers, at least Yorkville, provided all these stages, had all these kids. It was like this captive audience every night. So people are pouring in. Who comes? Uh, from Saskatoon, Joni Mitchell, mm. uh, who comes from uh, Winnipeg, Neil Young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot comes from Aurelia.
0: Gordon Lightfoot, uh, one of my favorite people. You should never feel any shame for loving Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, That's he's what saying.
1: I say. <laughs> <laughs> he's, well, he literally is, I think, referred to as the national treasure in Canada. Uh, but, you know, Bruce Coburn comes out of the scene. Yeah. Uh, the band that would eventually be Steppenwolf comes mm-hmm. out of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... It's famous for all sorts of reasons, uh, and it's showing up on the radar perhaps too much. And again, it's, it's like it's, it's reached, uh, the point where it has to be, it can't get any bigger because it, mm-hmm. the confines of the district are simply too, uh, too tight. Mm-hmm. So that's thing one. Thing two is that, uh, what do you do to alleviate the problem of serious drug abuse in the district um the diggers are trying to shut down the speed uh, usage um but lsd is being very badly misused uh people are taking it you know daily and causing themselves psychic trauma uh, of various kinds um marijuana is often not marijuana it's it's cut with various different things people don't know the difference again it's really still a quite a new quant, an unknown quantity For for many of the people involved in the scene, all of these things conspire to uh, lead up to what is really one of the more extraordinary events that I detail in the book, which is the hepatitis epidemic Mm. of 1968. Um, So, a lot of people are using needle drugs, um, but there's also, which of course could could spread hepatitis, but there's also the problem of uh, the association of these transient youth with filth. I mean, with being unclean. Sure. There's the the dirty hippie is a kind of classic trope that, that comes around
0: Right? <laughs> um
1: well what is what did dirty people spread? Disease. Uh add that to the fact that there's a long standing history of um ghettoized communities that are seen as foreign and other and dangerous or anxiety inducing in the wider cityscape. These are places that are incubators of disease in this, in this sort of, uh, understanding this. Really it's about anxiety, class anxiety, uh, racism. Um, this is a long-standing story. Well, strangely it gets applied to Yorkville. I mean, Yorkville, the hippie ghetto is a way it was described. Um, it's a place that you can enter into uh, and come out changed. How are you changed? Is it ideological? Is it sexual? Is it uh, you know related to drug use? Did it make you crazy? Uh, or did it actually give you a disease? There are counselors famously calling it um, uh, Sil Apps, actually, who is a Toronto Maple Leaf who came, became a, a politician. He famously calls it a festering sore yep. on the face of Toronto. Uh, they use this language about about disease to describe the place. Well, by the summer of 1968, all of this stuff kind of comes together and Yorkville uh, experiences... A, a, a higher than usual number of cases of hepatitis now higher than usual is it 's not that many, uh, and it 's suspected hepatitis. It takes a while for the test to come back. Yeah. Um, the medical officer of health uh, reports this and immediately gets picked up by media sources and and uh, local politicians as evidence that Yorkville is diseased. Maybe Yorkville is a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's the Toronto Star newspaper. Anyway, one of the local newspapers refers to it as hippie hepatitis. Uh Uh, Suddenly, to be a villager is to be diseased. It happens very, very quickly. People are starting to report being refused. um, They they can't order food at restaurants because they look like a villager. Um, The village itself goes under uh, What? Is essentially a quarantine. Um, all the businesses, restaurants are shut down as they inspect to find, you know, sources of, of hepatitis. And throughout the month, the medical officer of health keeps coming on, going on record saying, "Look, this is crazy. You guys are overreacting. Uh, we still don't know anything. We've got a couple of cases, uh, and it's perfectly normal that there be a couple of cases. A lot of these kids are using needle drugs, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, but." on it goes. And it blows up until by the end of August, Yorkville is effectively empty. Um, Young people have been forced to try to find other places to congregate. The hip scene that understood Yorkville to be their scene, the logical place, perhaps the only logical place for them to congregate, have now spent a month finding new centers around Toronto. And what seemed like an impossible task, ridding Yorkville of its denizens many, uh, a couple months before, now seemed, well, possible, Mm -hmm. easy even. Um, You have to construct a way in which Yorkville's Definition changes in the public imagination. Mm-hmm.
0: I have a couple. I have a couple of follow up questions. I know we're running out of time, but I really want to ask these things. Uh, number one, what happens to Yorkville in the seventies? I mean, that's even before it became a place to buy five hundred dollar handbags, right? And then my second question is, uh, what happened to all the people who were there? I mean, did they turn out horribly? I mean, did they are they are they drug adult adults now? Or I mean.
1: Uh, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, they is an impossible yeah, sure, uh, quantity sure. uh, because, as far as I can tell, everybody went to Yorkville. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and this is how this is this is my gauge of that. I have talked about this book in public a lot of times. I've done speeches. I've done um, interviews. Every single person that I've talked to uh, was there. Um, every single person I talked to said, oh, you should have interviewed me.
0: It's like the French said, Resistance. Everybody was in it.
1: Yeah. And I, say, and I say, why should I have interviewed you? And they said, well, I went. I said, how many times? I said, I don't know, five, six times. <laughs> right? So everybody was there. Everybody made the scene. Everybody was a villager or was a tourist or was engaged in some way in the construction of the scene for however long they were there. Uh, again, that's part of what attracts, attracts them to the story. But that also means that there is no answer to the question of what became of them. Um, some of the major figures, we could track their careers uh, or their trajectories after... Uh, being in the scene, some of the sort of media firebrands and that type of thing. But the average villager goes on to be the average Torontonian or the average Canadian or where, whatever it is. I mean, it's it. There's kind of a it's kind of a mundane thing. Yeah. Of course, that many of the people that were engaged in in the speed uh, scene had pretty awful outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vast majority of people uh, just go on to be the vast majority of people. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> The second question is, how does it come to be the flashy, uh, uber-wealthy center of Toronto, which it is today? And that's a really uh, – I mean, it's, 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 there's, a, there's a kind of counter-narrative to everything that I've said today, uh, which is that in the early 60s, some of those European-influenced uh, um, artists and uh, shop owners were actually always interested in – the finer things and we're setting up galleries that were were designed to be uh, to be frequented by the upper middle class Forest Hill, uh, which is a wealthy suburb, uh, and Rosedale clientele. That was what they were trying to do. And the 60s was this kind of blip where they had kids sleeping on their porches, uh, but then the kids went away and they could continue mm-hmm. to sell to, to that clientele. I see. So essentially... The, the counter-narrative is maybe Yorkville was always on its way to becoming the center of uh, high-class shopping in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was always the story. And maybe the flash in the pan that was this sort of seven or eight years of, of hippie Yorkville is really this aberration. Mm-hmm. Um, because by the early 70s, the y- young people are basically gone uh, for the most part. The major... Attractions like the 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 sort of go go dance bars and coffee houses, most of them are disappearing. There's a couple that remain, like the riverboat, which is sort of the quintessential one. Remains until the late 70s, but most of them are gone. Um, and there are all sorts of other opportunities. There's all sorts of places now in Toronto to hang around. Uh, the idea that Yorkville was the one spot has disappeared. So why hang around there? And that just gives the space back over to the shop owners and people start to realize that it is famous so why not take advantage of its famous address uh, and set up your uh, you know multi million dollar investment there
0: mm-hmm. right no it's a good, good re- name recognition They're very mm-hmm. high name recognition as they say in marketing and and you know that's some nice real estate especially after people started to move back into the city which I, in the united states it generally happened in the Eighties, people realized that some urban properties were undervalued and kind of wanted to move back because there were still a couple of coffee shops there, and that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it started a kind of a mad rush back into the city, especially in places like lower Manhattan, but it happened all over the United States. Um, what you- is especially weird, though, about Yorkville,
1: unlike say, Haight-Ashbury or, uh, or Greenwich Village, is that both Haight-Ashbury and Greenwich Village have retained a, a kind of, like, hippie museum Thing, the sort of the sense that, well, yeah, obviously this isn't where we hang out anymore, but this is where we were, and here is evidence of that fact. You know, (laughs) celebrating that Yorkville is it is erased, it is gone. You could not, I mean, you could knock yourself out walking up and down those streets, talk to every single person you meet, and not one of them, unless they grew up in Toronto in the '60s, uh, has any idea. Huh. of its prehistory as a counterculture site or as a festering sore on the face of the right. city
0: <laughs> that is really interesting because that is definitely not true of, of a place like haydashbury where there's a kind of hippie nostalgia all the time and p- kids will still go there and like take their shoes off and i don't know what else they do put flowers in their hair uh, uh, you know i did my fair share of that uh, in berkeley in the 1980s in the late 80s and early 90s so it, it still happens uh, you know, and that desire of kids to escape middle-class life, I mean, it's been institutionalized in ways. I know that in the late 70s and 80s, it became following the Grateful Dead or, I don't know, moving to Missoula, Montana was a big thing when I was in college. Uh, to a lesser extent, moving to Berkeley or lower Manhattan or, I suspect, Yorkville. But there was still a desire among, a, I think, a minority of kids to uh, drop out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, And I have to say, even as an adult, I sometimes fantasize about it. Like, what if I just walked off the job right. you know, and traveled? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd probably you know, be hungry.
1: <laughs> and and one of the ways that I guess we can interpret that is that there's this, and, and this is true of the 60s perhaps as it is true today, uh, is that there is a kind of Thoreauian, <laughs> yeah. so obviously yeah. it goes back a long time, um, desire on the part of many people who are at the center to imagine themselves on the margins yeah. you know if you see yourself as one of the many in the in the majority reimagining yourself as a kind of embattled minority is thrilling uh and that's something that yorkville offers um it offers these kids who are at the center you know white male in many cases at least half uh, uh protestant torontonian's they get to reimagine themselves at the at the outskirts of the mainstream mm-hmm. um, you know and they're in, they're being pushed around by cops and nobody understands what they believe about the world and and they want to end the war because the establishment's all crazy and uh you know all of this stuff it's like recasting yourself as a minority mm-hmm. uh, is is kind of crucial i think to this understanding of yorkville as their space mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this this desperate desire on the part of so many of these young people to protect that space mm-hmm. to uh, battle against any any foes that would would try to remove them from it mm-hmm. it's a kind of conflation of the space with the activity mm-hmm. it's like yorkville becomes a countercultural activity
0: yeah no I, mean, I i i I agree with everything you've you've said there Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, when I used to, I used to go to Grateful Dead shows all the time, and uh, I recognized that it was a kind of performance that we were all, we had met there, and we sort of threw our daily lives aside. At least most of us, there were the really authentic types that had hair down to their waist and traveled around in buses. I didn't do that. I was in graduate school, (laughs) a big university. (laughs) But for that, Time period, you know, I was living that kind of Theronian fantasy of being not not being in the center of something and not climbing up some ladder, which I definitely was doing. I was climbing a ladder, uh, right. but, but setting all that aside for just a moment and being kind of among, I guess among equals. I mean, I never really thought about it in those terms, but I was putting all that aside for just mm-hmm. you know for just a little while. Anyway, we've taken up uh, too much of your time, I think, and I want to get to what is our uh, traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now, Stuart?
1: So I never gave you part three of the question of what happened at the end of the 60s. And that's uh, really helpful because it's also the answer to this question. Oh, okay, great. Uh, One of the other things that happened at the uh, tail end of 1968 is, uh, you know, you have that hepatitis thing that really scares people off the district, causes them to look around for other places to go. And at that exact same moment, something weird happens down the street. A building opens. A high-rise, 18 stories, an apartment complex. It's called Rochdale College. This is a building that is to be essentially an overflow residence space for the University of Toronto, which is just adjacent, but is not formally connected to the university. It's called a college because they're going to have a kind of experiential slash alternative educational program inside where people could kind of informally set up seminars and it would all happen in the building. And if you were a resident, you were expected to take part in that, but you didn't have to. Some people would just live there and and work outside or go to U of T or whatever it was, University of Toronto. Um, this building has a kind of cachet in the uh, in the hip underground uh, as it's being built because people start to look at it as you know that sounds really hip. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a university that is not a university. It's a counter institution. Uh, if I see myself as countercultural. Maybe this is for me. Mm -hmm. And they get tons of applications like crazy. But when they're supposed to open their doors in September 1968, they're not ready. The building's not quite complete. And what ends up happening is it gets flooded with basically Yorkville expats, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Villagers who find the village to be on its way down, see Rossdale is on its way up. Now, it's 18 stories, this building. There's room for 850 people. By most measurements, there are as, as many as 3,000 and more in the building at any given time right. from 1968 on. What ends up happening in a bizarre turn is, uh, in the words of uh, at least one observer from the period, Yorkville goes high rise. <laughs> <laughs> But here's – so this is the book that I'm, I'm writing right now. So it's, it's the answer to, to – uh, one part of the answer to the question and also the answer to this question. What am I doing? I'm writing a book on Rochdale College. Why? Uh, a couple of reasons. First, it's an unbelievable story. This building lasts for seven years, uh, 68 to 75. It is uh, run by residents who are, for lack of a better word, hippies, counterculturists. Um, it is a major drug distribution warehouse, perhaps the biggest drug distribution warehouse in uh, North America, as it was once suggested. Uh, it is a huge hub for draft resistors coming up from the States um, because you can hide out in the building. The security is run by local toughs that m- many of them in some way are connected to the drug trade or even some of the bikers. Um It is a free zone, a safe zone. It's very, very difficult to get arrested when you're in that building because when cops storm the building, for the most part, uh, everyone fought back and would fight the cops back off. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an amazing space. space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is also uh, a really neat sequel to the Yorkville book because if if you take everything that I said today and sort of add it up, we end up with is – if I try to reduce it to one sentence anyway, it's – Yorkville is public. It is visible. You can see it. You can take part in it. Anyone can walk down the street and pretend to be engaged in it and might even be mistaken for being part of the scene uh, by another passerby who isn't hip to what's going on. In other words, Yorkville is highly collaborative and highly uh, open. Rochdale is closed. Mm-hmm. It's a symbol. It's a big gray concrete, ugly-as-all-get-out building <laughs> uh, right there on the street that you can only imagine what's going on inside. Because unless you go in and you got to be kind of brave to get past the security and get into that building, uh, you just don't know. Uh-huh. And you know who can't get in, really? Those municipal authorities. There's no fact-finding missions uh-huh. in, 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 in Rochdale like they might have been in, in Yorkville. Uh, it's an imagined space mm-hmm. in a way that's different Uh, fundamentally different from the way Yorkville was. And in the public imagination, the Rochdale thing uh, takes on kind of mythical proportions as this, basically, this concentrated site of countercultural energy. But what attracts me to it, and the reason uh, that I'm most uh, excited about it as a book, is that it also answers a certain question about what happens to hip ghettos when they break down. uh, Which Hey, Ashbury does by the late 60s Greenwich Village or the East Village does to a certain extent Yorkville does. Uh, a lot of people who have become deeply disillusioned by the uh, drubbing that they've taken in the press, the misunderstanding that they believe uh, surrounds everything that they do, um, the co-optation that is the kind of the catchword of the fra- of the day, they a lot of them disappear. Uh, they step out of the mainstream. There's a kind of sense of, let's stop trying to change the system. Let's change our place in the system. Mm-hmm. Let's remove ourselves. Um, we see hip communes growing up all over North America. I mean, there's an explosion of uh, rural communes, urban communes, people trying to change their place in society uh, by stepping out of society to a great extent. What is Roschdale College? It is an indoor Village mm-hmm. Main Street is the elevator. They've got their own newspaper. They've got their own governing council. They've got their own um, mm-hmm. booze cans. They've got their own food services. They've got, you know, literally food delivery services within the building. Everything's in the building. They've got, they set up a, a free clinic in the building. They have doctors in the building for residents. They set up a library. Rochdale College becomes essentially a 3,000 plus person strong site of otherness. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's uh, it's a parallel society right there in the center of Toronto. And it's everything in that sense that Yorkville uh, Yorkville's most visionary uh, collaborators wanted Yorkville to become, mm-hmm. uh, a different space. Well, Rochdale pulls it off mm-hmm. to a great extent for... Uh, almost seven years.
0: It sounds like a fascinating story, and it is a really interesting contrast to uh, Yorkville. So I- I'm envious of the topic and the work that you're probably doing. I bet you're finding out new stuff all the time. And that's, uh, a, good, a, that's a good place to be in right there. So uh, let me thank you for being on the show. Uh, we ran a little bit over, but I tried to keep it uh, to a reasonable length. The material is so interesting, though. You know, I mean, really, this is just fascinating stuff, especially for uh, somebody who is a, a, a wannabe hippie, I guess. That's <laughs> I was totally. I want to be hippie. I could never really pull it off. Um, So it's just really a fascinating book. Today we've been talking with uh, Stuart Henderson about Making the Scene, Yorkville, and Hip Toronto in the 1960s. It's a terrific book. Stuart, thank you for writing it, and thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, Marshall, it's a great pleasure for me. Thanks very much. Sure. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. We've been talking with Stuart Henderson about his book, Making the Scene, Yorkville, and Hip Toronto in the 1960s. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.